Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes. I was joined this week by Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, for a fun and engaging conversation on a variety of topics. We talked about the idiosyncrasies and charms of New Hampshire and governance and politics. We talked about his wins and losses during his tenure as governor. I asked him whether the Republican Party is a friendly place for a limited government conservative like Sununu, given what we've seen over the past several years. We discussed New Hampshire's first in the nation primary and the role it will likely play in 2024. And we discussed uh, his sort of open contemplation of a presidential run and whether he was serious when he called Donald Trump effing crazy during a dinner in Washington last spring. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Governor Stunu. Great to have you. Nice to have you in the uh, in the very fancy Dispatch Podcast offices, and good to good to sit across the table from you uh, for this of, conversation. Of Washington D.C., my favorite place on <laughs> earth. <laughs> now I don't. I, I, I I'm not very good at picking up on the obvious, but I think you were being sarcastic there. I just got off the airplane, and already I need a shower. <laughs> so. so let me. This is a good place to start. Let me start there. Um, you spent some time here. You, you grew up here. You yeah. went. Uh, you went to high school. Um, outside of D.C., Thomas Jefferson High School, very prestigious high school, well-regarded, often ranked the best high school in the country. It's been in the news a bit lately. It has. Have yeah. you followed this controversy? Oh, yeah. So this is the yeah. school um, where administrators didn't give a heads up to national merit commendees and uh, triggered this investigation, which has led to the discovery of a lot of schools not having done that. Have you followed it? Are you surprised that oh, yeah. this is well, happening? I'm, I'm following it. Uh, a lot of my former classmates, are. You know, we, we kind of chat about it. We still stay in contact a bit. Um, from what I've read and from what I understand, it's an absolute disaster. Uh, it, it, the fact that it's not just a high school. Uh, I mean, if you're holding withholding test information or merit information from a student, that in itself is deplorable. But the whole purpose of this high school is, I mean, it's really a high school of nerds, right? Let's just kind of own what it is. It's like a little MIT. And so, you know, that stuff is really important to, to a lot of these students. They put so much effort and so much uh, into that. And to think that you would have a principal or whoever was behind it holding back results as, a, a, an, as their own responsibility to uh, have an equity of outcomes, right? This country is not based on equity of outcomes. This country is based on equity of opportunity. And, uh, and the, if, if that's the way it all really bears out, I think they're doing a whole investigation. It's just, it's absolutely crazy. And, and as a parent, I have two teenagers in high school right now. If, my, if I found out that for some reason the, the merit results of my teenagers were being withheld from them and me to basically hold my kids back because we make, have to make everybody on the same playing field, um, it's beyond just getting fired, right? It's really, um, uh, you, you got to kind of have a bit of an upheaval of the entire system and say, what are we doing? What What is the training going on within the, the Fairfax County system that would drive that? It's a public school. Yeah, I mean, this is, but, it has real world implications for these kids. I mean, they they work hard. Um, they, they achieve this thing, which is not easy to achieve. It's something that you use in college admissions. It will have... Potentially, I mean, now that it's been discovered, um, it might not, and they've retroactively scrambled to let the kids. But what if they hadn't discovered it? Right, you're, 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 it really can have impact on where those kids go to college, what they major in, that first major step in adulthood and in, in their career path and their life path. 
It is life-changing for those kids. And to think that one or two individuals behind the scenes are going to hold, effectively hold kids back from their opportunities to equate outcomes, which, by the way, doesn't work, right? We all know that. Not only is it in, inappropriate and wrong in itself, but it doesn't work. And I look, I come from the live free or die state where individual liberty and freedom and, and opportunity is everything that, that we do. Um, but you, again, we create the opportunity, not just the government, but our communities. But you have to kind of to drive through that. But you do it with transparency. You do it with lifting people up, not holding people back. So you referred to Thomas Jefferson as sort of a nerd factory. You went from one nerd factory to another. Uh, you went to MIT. You're an Glenn en- for punishment. engineer by training. Yeah. You've run successful businesses. Um, presumably, given that background in engineering, you have sharp reasoning, uh, logical. Why would you choose to go into politics? I know, right? I, I always said, and my wife asked me this all the time, because there was never a sense of going into politics, right? My dad was a former governor and the White House chief of staff. My brother was in politics. But I also have seven brothers and sisters. So three of us have gone into politics. We're not a f- political family. For, by New Hampshire standards, that's nothing, right? In New Hampshire, <laughs> everybody runs for office. That's just, that's just absolutely the way it is. So the, the two drivers for me were, um, uh, I started having, I had kids. And they started going through public schools, as I did, through New Hampshire. And we have great public schools in New Hampshire. But they, something wasn't the same. The Common Core stuff was happening. This was back around 2014 and 2015. This wasn't quite the, the, the public schools that I had grown up in. And I was getting complaints from teachers um, you know, when we were talking about it. At the same time, I was running my own business. I uh, put an investment group together. I ran a, a resort, Waterville Valley Resort. And my family is still involved in it. I've pulled, since pulled myself away. But I was the chairman, CEO, general manager on the ground every day. And I was in the live free or die state. But there were all these massive state regulations bearing down. And I worked very hard to follow every rule. And I thought, man, if I have to struggle this hard to fill out all these forms and go through these review processes that just seem mundane and pointless, um, what does a little guy do, right? You know, in, you know, New in New I mean, Hampshire. In New Hampshire. In the right. live free or die state. I said, this is just not right. So what I realized had happened was uh, years, every year, it's creep, right? Government creep, a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. And after 20 years of basically Democrat governors, uh, we hadn't had a Republican governor uh, except for one two-year term in 20 years. We had kind of become like everybody else, but we're not. We are so different. And I'm really proud since I've become governor in the past six years. Um, we are, look, we're the, we're the diamond in the rough up in the Northeast. We're the red state. We, uh, you know, champion our individual freedoms. We managed COVID better than anyone. We stayed open. We stayed flexible. We did it in a reasonable way. We didn't ignore the virus at all. We just put reason and common sense and transparency to everything, and it's worked out well. Strongest economy, only state in the Northeast that's actually growing in population. So we have all these wonderful metrics now. Still a lot of challenges. No, don't get me wrong. But we've really been able to put the, the teams in place, the metrics, and most important, the sense of accountability. That we're in government. We have to, we have to get something done, right? I, I'm not putting my family through all this public scrutiny to not get anything done. That's, that's, I, it boggles my mind that so many people are willing to do that. Um, and I've had Republicans run my legislature. I've had Democrats run my legislature. We always find a way to do it. We always cut taxes. We always get rid of more, a little more regulation every year. And we're always creating opportunities. So I love it. And I just, I love my job. I'm not going to lie to you. I really love it. So, so you're uh, at the beginning of your, your uh, fourth two-year term. Fourth, yeah, fourth term. Fourth yeah, two-year term. And um, you talk about these accomplishments. What's your single proudest accomplishment on a policy level? Over that time, yeah. What have you done? It's it's a boy. That's a tough one. So I got to tell you, we talked about school choice in New Hampshire for forty years. I got it done. I was told that I could. We had we don't have sales tax. We don't have uh, income tax. But we did have this pesky thing called interest and dividends tax. 
And even Republicans said, you can never get rid of it. Guess what? It's going away. It's gone. It'll be gone. And we're rolling it out. I passed a law to actually get rid of that. So, um, but then overall, if, if I might, I was most proud of my team over COVID. I really was because everyone disappeared. Legislature disappears. Everyone disappears. Most of the government all disappears. It's basically the White House and 50 governors. And to the White House's credit at the time, uh, we had former Vice President Pence, who had, uh, who had been a governor. And he is the one that probably doesn't get nearly enough credit as he deserves in making sure the White House let states do it as the states wanted to do it, right? It wasn't, um, here's the CARES Act money and here's the 10,000 pages of rules you have to follow. It's, look, here's the guidelines. You guys got to help, you know, really figure this out because what is good for New Hampshire might be different than Arizona or New York or even Massachusetts. And because of that, we were able to really shine. And I say we because it really was a team effort. And it was my team, I think, that had to take, you know, I, I mean, I could write a whole book on, on those first early days of COVID, but I said, look, guys, Whatever this goes, because we don't know what's going to happen, I'm probably done politically, right? Let's just accept that I'll never get elected again, because I er realized early on I was going to have to make decisions that got everybody upset. I just assumed that that would eventually uh, happen. With respect to the vaccines, with, with respect with, to mandates, well, we didn't even know closures. there were vaccines at the time. This is back in March. We didn't know if there'd ever right, be right when you right? first yeah. heard. Yeah. So I said, you know, there's some people. It was clear that some people wanted complete shutdowns right? Lock-in orders and all that kind of, which we obviously weren't going to. And some people wanted to ignore it completely, which we weren't going to do that either. So we were going to have to walk a fine line, which means everybody was going to get upset with us. At the end of the day, we did it really well. Our, our secret sauce, if you will, was I made sure that every time we made a decision, we brought the business community in. Um, there's, uh, restaurants would come to us and say, look, we want to stay open. I said, great, stay open. And they said, but we want our customers to feel safe. So Give it, let's work on some guidelines together so the customers feel safe, like we're acknowledging it, but they still know they can come in and we can stay open and still make money. And that's what we did. So we, then we did it with um, uh, hair salons, and then we did it with car dealers, and we, did, we let them, them, not the government, we let them design their own successes through the COVID pandemic. It was a massive amount of work. Um, we were kind of standing on our own on it, and it really worked. And so overall, I'd say how we handled that in, 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 its, in its entirety also, the, the transparency piece, that was the most important thing. Through a crisis, you have to maintain public trust, right? Because, and by the way, the White House was terrible at that at the time, right? And Fauci and all that kind of nonsense. But then the go guys, governors, we had to stand up and say, look, this is the data we're seeing. And I would show, I'm a data, like, I'm, I'm a nerd. So I'd show my data, I'd show the trends and why this is the decision we're making. And here's the data that's supporting that decision. And I would stand up there and I would let the press ask any question they wanted until they had nothing left to answer. Every, that could be dangerous. Every day. Very dangerous. I went on live TV. This is another one. My staff was like, don't do this. But I said, we got to be transparent. We got to own everything. So I went on live TV on WMUR in New Hampshire a few times, like once a week. And they would just shoot at me questions off of Facebook, like just the, the, the most yeah. sane and to the crazy questions, right. things we had answered or not answered. And sometimes I'd have to say, that's a great question. I don't know. And then the next day at the press conference, I'd come back and say, I was asked this and here's the answer. So you just have to own, the, you know, we can say we're all in it together or you can make sure that the community really understands we are all in it together. So that was a, a very unique way of governing. I loved it. It was a great example, I think, of, of how to do it and how to manage a crisis. And yeah, probably one of my more proud moments that we, we really came through it well. So you mentioned um, also school choice, um, the educational freedom accounts uh, in New Hampshire. Um, certainly we've seen... Lots of progress on school choice for those of us who believe in school choice. Lots of progress nationally over the past few years. The educational freedom accounts um, pay for or are available to families, children and families, earning 300% of the poverty level. Yep. 
Um, that's not everybody. No, no. Are you are you prepared to push? Yeah. To broaden it? We can. Is that a priority for um, this? I, I can term? tell you, I'm going to have a budget presentation in about two weeks, and we're going to look into broadening it. So, you know, the, for years they tried to do just the kind of voucher program and school choice for everyone. And I said, look, guys, let's get in the door. Let's prove the model that it works, and let's focus on those that have the least access to, to school choice. You know, low-income families, right? A lot of them are inner-city families. A lot of them are families that have never even been asked, what do you want for your kids? And we're going to change that paradigm. And we did. Uh, really exciting. So we started at 300% of the federal poverty level. Um, a massive number of families took advantage, way more than, than we thought. Very successful program. And we'll, we'll broaden it. If, if I say, look, we're just going to make it available for everyone, it'll, that'll never pass, right? So um, the amazing, and we can talk about this in a minute, the amazing aspect of my legislature right now, I have 400 members in my House of Representatives, right. 400, the third largest parliamentary body. It's pretty body. evenly split, too. 200, it's 201 to 199. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So nothing too extreme is going to get passed, but we can get stuff done. And so, yeah, I'm going to propose an expansion of the program because it's been so successful. And there's so many families that, uh, that again, just were never told and never offered that they had a choice. And now they're, they're taking advantage, which is really exciting. When you look around, you spent a lot of time talking to, to other governors, your colleagues, um, Republicans and Democrats. When you look around and survey what other governors have been able to accomplish, is there anything that you look at from another governor and you say, I wish I could do that yeah. or, or this has been successful. I'm jealous. So I, uh, let's just start with school choice, right? So I look back what Jeb Bush did with school choice back in Florida. Um, I look at what Doug Ducey did. He really expanded it in, uh, in Arizona. He did a great job. Even in West Virginia, they did a really good job uh, you know, expanding school choice. And we've looked at some of those models. Um, uh, you know, it's funny, at least with the Republican governors, all the governors get along very well, generally speaking, compared to what you see in Congress, right? There's a lot of bipartisanship because we're not at each other's throats. We're really trying to, you know, if anything, there's a friendly competition. And especially amongst Republican governors, I mean, I, I love working with those. Those men and women are, are incredible. And, and I, that's my team. That's one of the main reasons I, I didn't want to run for the U.S. Senate, because I knew I wasn't going to get a team like that again. If I needed a health care question, I'd call Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. That was his background, right? If I needed a question um, uh, on, on energy, I'd call Doug Burgum from North Dakota or um, Mark out in Wyoming. Um, we talk about mining and minerals. We'd, I'd call Spencer out in, out in Utah. So I think everyone understands where they have their expertise, if you will. Um, I, I don't know what my expertise is. Maybe uh, Individual liberty, freedom, and, and really good government. The number one question I get is, wait, you keep saying you have no income tax, you have no sales tax. How is that possible? Right? And we're ranked as the most efficient government in the country. And we're, um, that's really one of the best rankings I can, I can think of, that we, you get the biggest bang for your buck for your, the few tax dollars you put in. So when we talk about efficiency of government and, and kind of getting back to local control and what I think is the best government, which is not a top-heavy government, not a heavy hand from the top, uh, I, that's probably where, where, where we'd come in a little bit. Um, you know, there are some governors that are great on education, and we've tried to—I got to really change my education formula in New Hampshire. Um, you know, over across the country, one of the dynamics, it's going to hit everybody soon, really, except for maybe a few states in the south, but there is— uh, Gen Z is having less kids later in life, which means our schools don't have as many kids in them, right? And, they, and they, that can, is going to continue to decline, which means a lot of the funding models that are based on number of students in the classroom are going to start kind of collapsing, if you will. So you're going to have schools going, wait, I keep losing money. Well, because you, you lost five more kids this year and 10 more kids next year. Um, so what is, how do you create more, more sustainable models? I'm not a believer that 
Look, if, those that say, well, if you just put more money into education, you'll get better results. No, wrong, not the case. But obviously, you do need some core you know, base. There, there is a fixed cost to, to keeping the lights on in the classroom. And so you got to make sure you're maintaining that. And you're also being enticing and an attractive place for teachers to come to, not just because of pay, but because it's a place they want to work. They feel like they have a voice. So really uh, stretching on that. So every governor kind of has their specialty. Some Democrat governors do uh, to, to, uh, as well. Uh, Gina Raimondo isn't a good one from Rhode Island, former, former governor of Rhode Island. We worked together quite a bit. Um, and she was just, she was always a, a really straight shooter to work with. Would you have been happy to call Carrie Lake and ask her sort of what she would have done? Where would you have I, sought I never advice met Carrie Lake. I can't. I, Doug I Mastriano? I never met him. Never okay. met him. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll use that as our transition into, into some politics. <laughs> into what? Into some politics. <laughs> okay. Well, we could do into crazy. Doug Mastriano we'll... is now our transition into the abyss. <laughs> the transition into what not w- to do. Wouldn't be the first time he served that role. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've been pretty open about the fact that you, you're you thinking about running for president, um, which is – that doesn't happen all the time. I mean a lot of yeah, people look, play, play sort of coy. You haven't been. Yeah. Well, look, maybe it was the COVID thing. I don't know what it was, but I, I really – you asked me a question. I'm going to give you a straight answer. I'm not here to couch my words. I'll be as – for the most part, as polite as I can be. Um, I'm probably, my wife reminds me I'm not nearly as funny as, uh, as I think I am. I don't think any politician <laughs> is. But, you know, I'm just going to give you a straight answer. And so the straight answer is, yeah, of course. Yeah, people are, are talking about it. So, of course, we're having those conversations as well. But I would never get into a race like that unless, A, I really thought we could move the dial. Um, obviously, we'd want a chance to win. A lot of folks get in and run because they want to be vice president. They run because they want to write a, sell their book, which are mostly god-awful, by the way. Have you read p- politicians' books? Too many of them. Yeah, dry as— You're not uh, writing one then? Uh, if I wrote a book, it would be a really—I would make sure it was really good. I'd probably write a funny book more than anything on the hypocrisy of government that I'm witnessing all over the country, the hypocrisy of bad, uh, of bad policies on both sides of the aisle. But, um, but no, we're, we're definitely talking about it. But I, my biggest concern and the reason I'm, I'm doing a lot of national stuff lately is, A, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of these would-be candidates are, are so try to be so coy about everything. It's like, come on, guys. They're all my friends. Nikki Haley and Pompeo and Pence, these guys are all really good people and they're all my friends. And as kind of the referee of the first in the nation primary, I do have a, a responsibility and an opportunity to make sure that we do it right. It's not just about how much money you, you raise or your name ID. You better get in the room and shake some hands and look some people in the eye because that's what good government's all about. That's localizing your policies. That's listening to someone and saying, look, you have all these great ideas up here at 30,000 feet. But at the end of the day, you know, my kid's struggling in his classroom. Oh, okay. Not that the government can – not that a governor just solves that by waving a magic wand, but understanding what those issues are and then hopefully creating policies that create those opportunities for that family. Not telling them what they have to do or where they have to go, but look, my job is to create as many doors of opportunity as possible. I'm not here – I'm the governor, and I am not – I'm telling you, I ain't here to solve your problems. The government is not here to solve your problems. We are really here to create those, those opportunities. Now, when you get at that grassroots level and you campaign at that level, 
great stuff can happen and real conversation can happen. And if I can drive that, all the better. Because I so think let these me, candidates let me jump have to in be on better. a policy level, actually. That's, that's an interesting point. Um, you said government is not here to solve your problems. There are echoes of Ronald Reagan, certainly, in, in that. Um, but that hasn't been, I would argue, um, the main argument from national Republicans over the past seven, eight years. I mean, you look around, and certainly at the federal level, it's hard to find a limited government. I know. Party. It's, and it's, it's disappointing. And I, I'm not giving up on it. I just look, people say all the time, well, the Republican Party didn't do as well in November of 22 as they should have done. So don't you need to change? No, we just got to remember what we are truly about. Get off the headlines, get off the political stunts, get off the big government authoritarianism where I say, well, the, that guy doesn't agree with me. So I'm going to pound down on him. Hold it, guys. We are about limited government, local control, individual responsibility, low taxes. Let's just start there. Yeah. That's 80, 90 percent of what we can all agree on. Do it, but but, it, but is it court. is it is it the case that we agree 80, on 90 percent of Republicans agree on? It's that? not sexy. It doesn't raise money. I mean, money. the big government. The, it seems to me that the sort of big government Republicanism, the big government authoritarianism, to use your phrasing, is becoming more and more popular in a in a political culture where it seems as important or more important not to get policy results, but to 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 go after the bad it's guys about the fight. and to be disliked by the yeah. by the right people. How do you get past that? I mean, the people who are look. I mean, th this has been true in in your primary endorsements, right? You've done very well in general election, popular mm -hmm. governor, sixty percent approval. You haven't had success as much success in your primary endorsements. I would say in part because of that exact dynamic. Yeah. So I mean, nationally, um, it's Republicans and Democrats. I think it, the core values of what we're about, we can agree on, but the process at which we get those results, we start fracturing because it becomes more about the fight. You can raise money on the fight. You can get a headline on the fight. Look, um, you're in fifth grade. Uh, you hear that there's going to be a fight after school at the, uh, at, underneath the jungle gym at three o'clock. Where is everybody at yeah. three o'clock yeah. underneath to watch the fight? And social media figured out this model early on, and they said, whoa, 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 let's let people have at it. Let's let people scream and fight and have it out because we're going to sell more of our product and we can advertise and make money. And a, a couple of years later, mainstream media caught up and said, whoa, 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 why are we getting left behind? It's all about the fight. Yeah. It's not, nobody wants to- For the Republican base to use to, to, to yeah. take your, your um, metaphor of another step would, would not want you to go and watch the fight. They would want you to go and be one of the combatants. Yeah. And yeah. Their, their criticism of Republicans in, in days past, they were too polite. Yeah. They were fight watchers. We yeah. need a fighter. I mean, that, I would argue that's perhaps that's the main got... reason Donald Trump won. Of course. Of right? course it is. He connected at a gut level with folks' anger. And he was fighting yeah. about, in some cases, he was fighting on the other side of things that Republicans have argued for years in some cases. You mean former Democrat Donald Trump? Right. Remember the days when, I mean, this is, remember when Donald, there was a day when Donald Trump was a Democrat and Bloomberg was a Republican, right? There was actually a day they, when those, that New York bizarro world existed. Um, so, and that, but now obviously the former president is just the quote unquote darling of the conservatives, but whether he really holds those values and everything is, is something totally different to be debated because to your point, and it's the right point, uh, our anger uh, to kind of, excuse the pun, trumps everything. Um, people enjoy the political stunts. Now, I hear people all the time say, oh, yeah, you know, we don't want big government telling us what to do. But, yeah, when, when you know, whether it was DeSantis or Trump or whatever, you know, put their finger and, and put their thumb down on that town or that school board. Wasn't that awesome? 
And I say, no. I mean, I, I might agree. I hate wokeism. I think this cancel culture stuff is terrible. But are we actually saying that conservative cancel culture is okay? That as and conservatives, that what, we is can that what do you it? see from DeSantis on, on some of these No, not just Ron, but from issues. a lot of folks. You've been critical of him in the past. Well, you, sure. You've, you've suggested that he is yeah, in some ways an avatar of, of this big uh, He's 2. You know, 0, big government. Right? Yeah. He's the new version, the 2.0, whatever right. it is. So no, of, of course he is. And and look, he's a good governor. I'm, I, I don't mean I'm, I think people see me as critical of, of DeSantis because people ask me, and I'm I'm happy to talk about it. I mm. don't I don't shy away, and I'm sure people are very critical of me. That's fine too. I love you know love the constructive uh, feedback. Um, but at the end of the day, people uh, want that fight over over being reminded that that isn't what we're about. I might hate a company for what they're doing, their wokeism and all that kind of stuff. But if it is a private company with private employees and private share. Who am I? I'm the government. Who am I to tell that company who they can hire and fire? I ran a company. I ran my own company for a long time. If the government ever came in and said, you, you, you should do this or shouldn't do this or we're going to penalize you because we don't agree with you politically, because my big fear is this. I'm not worried about what happens in 24. I'm still, a, I consider my, I, what am I, 48? I probably act like I'm 18. But I'm more worried about 28, 32, 2036, because if we're all about the fight, we're never going to expand our party. We're never going to get those Gen Z independents or Gen Z, what should be solid Republicans that are kind of, kind of Democrats right now. We are not opening ourselves up. And we don't have the leadership and the voice out there that's saying, hey, it, it ain't about attacking people. It's really about bringing people together. And I think the Republican Party has so much to offer, but we're missing the opportunity because we get excited by a headline for a couple of days. So I just, I'm just trying to be that, I don't want to say the voice of reason, but really that voice of optimism and hope. I understand there's a fight that has to happen, yeah. but I just think that's, that's a short-term win. Yeah. I'm a Republican that is trying to build for the long-term, for the long-term well, strategy. I mean, it is, it's such a striking change. I mean, just, just talking to you and listening to you and having talked to you before, the optimism comes through. Um, it doesn't feel forced. No, I love it. But, but in a way, it's like... That's not where the Republican Party is right now. Well, it's I don't a, think it's where it's America a grievance is. party right out, now. No, I, 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 it's not just Republicans though. Let's be fair. fair. The Democrats are just as negative and dour. And you walk out your door. Most of America is in an incredibly fortunate, blessed place right now. Let's wake up every day. Let's start every day. Clap our hands and say, "Whoa, thank God I live in America." And I'm not. I don't have to see my kids go off in a Ukrainian war or whatever it might be. Right. Uh, be inscripted in Russia or, or deal with the, the craziness you see in, in parts of Africa or, or North Korea. I mean, there's, there's horrors in this world. Doesn't mean we don't have our problems, but let's be blessed about our core of, of Americans first and be excited about it and then build off of that optimism. I, I, I get excited about that. And if I can, you know, try to drive that message a little more, I think that I, there just needs to be, I'm not saying everyone has to agree with me politically or, or you know, I'm not rainbows and unicorns either. I mean, this morning I was in the state house working on some insanely tough issues, um, you know, rebuilding mental health and working on our opioid challenge, and which is a crisis across the country, dealing with immigration issues, which, again, is not a Texas issue. It is a 50-state crisis that Biden has blown it on. So we got to take our challenge on the problems. But there's so much economic opportunity right now. I mean, you know, it, it, we really are blessed. So let's grab onto those and then build from there, as opposed to saying, just like Democrats, this, this country is going to hell and capitalism and free markets don't work. You bet they work. They, they are everything. Nothing works but a free market. And, and that's me. I'm, I just try to be a principled free market conservative. And I'm trying to make sure people understand that that isn't just a couple words, that we live to that. 
and if I got to hold a few people accountable along the long way, so be it. What um, as you as you think about this, <clears throat> as you think about a possible run, what are the factors that will push you in one direction? Or another. Yeah, well, again, it, um, I'm all about accountability and results. So if I could, if I think I can get the results that we're looking for, absolutely I'll do it. Um, if I think that um, I'm just going to get in the way and be another candidate, then, then no. How's it going to affect my family? My, I'm a governor of a state. I'm not, I don't, not like some of these guys that just can spend 24-7 for the last couple of years running for president. My state comes first. New Hampshire comes first. The, the best part about being governor is I get to be super selfish. And by that, I mean I, my job is to put the 1.4 million people of my state first every time without prejudice and just try. I want all the other 49 states to look at New Hampshire under any circumstance and say, God dang, how are they doing it? How is that guy doing it? I love that. I love that sense of competition, designing systems, understand how they work from the ground up. It's one of my other big complaints. I think a lot of this, a lot of this um, negativity and the fight and all of that would, would dissipate if more politicians, more public servants – would understand how these systems work. So I can't tell you how many people vote for things. And I, I have had conversations with U.S. senators, Republican and Democrat, congressmen, Republican and Democrat, when you say, well, you guys passed a law or a rule or a funding that says X, Y, and Z, and they have no idea, literally no idea what you're talking right, about. Right. And it's like, wow, we have a mental health crisis. You don't even know how an average family accesses mental health, right? I'm, my job is to design that system ground up, empower that local control. So parents feel empowered with what, go back to what we started with, those doors of opportunity. Parent, a mom is in a mental health crisis. Her son is, is, is having issues, whatever it is. I want every mom to know, right, what is my first two steps that I can take? Because you're not thinking straight, right? In a mental health crisis, you're panicked. It's a family issue. There's stigma around it. What do I do next? Maybe it'll go away on its own. But I want every family to know what to do. Or if there's an opioid crisis, or if there's a healthcare crisis, or if there's a pandemic, or if there's a question about you know where what their choices are for school, I just want every citizen to understand their options. But I only know that, and I can only create that if I understand how those systems right. work ground up. These guys in Washington are, are a joke when it comes to that. Well, you look at the disconnect between I think governors um, and and other elected officials at the state level and politicians in Washington, and and one of the most obvious places is on debt and deficits, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> they don't. It, it, we, we've seen this sort of orgy of of spending, um, certainly under the Biden it's administration, um, first couple of years of the Trump administration, well before COVID. Oh yeah, Donald Trump was spending more than Barack Obama. Were you uh, in, surprised in by years. that though? Not at all. Not at all. That Not was his. All. That was his history. But, but this was the. I mean, this is, I guess, what goes back to the, the the question we were talking about just a moment ago. I mean, where are the the fiscal conservatives right now? We're having this. This we're seeing a a potential fight over the debt ceiling, and what you're hearing from many Republicans who are who want to make this a fight. And I'm an enthusiastic uh, combatant if it comes to restraining the size and scope of government. But you've got to actually get at the stuff that's causing the yeah. problem in the first place, and that is entitlements. That's of driving our, our, our national debt. Would you look at reforming entitlements? Would that be part of what you would run on? It's you know it's the yeah. supposed third rail of American no, politics. No, no. Everyone, everyone panics about, oh, well, you have to reform entitlements or not reform them. Um, they, they're missing a couple of huge pieces. So let me, let me take a, a one step back because you're absolutely right that so few people in Washington have any sense of any of this. Uh, I won't say who it was, but I'll tell you when I was thinking about running for the U.S. Senate right, and for the 22 election and all these uh, senators are calling me and I was actually out at a conference and, and I was sitting with one U.S. senator who I know fairly well. And uh, 
I said, look, just explain this to me. Why hasn't, why don't you guys, why doesn't one Republican senator stand up and just try, say, here's a, a, a first start at a balanced budget, right? Well, it'll never pass. Well, have the discussion, force the vote, see what will work and what won't. Get the easy stuff done, move, you know, but they won't even have the discussion. And they make it like that it is, it is absolutely impossible to do. No, Governor, you just can't do it that way. And I, and I get ticked off as a governor. I have to balance my budget every two years. And every two years, I cut taxes. And every two years, I have a surplus, right? And that creates more opportunity to do new things and, and all that. And there's no sense of that. And I had a, U, a Republican U.S. senator, a very high-ranking member of the U.S. Senate, tell me, Balancing budgets just isn't that important because the American, people, American public doesn't care. And I went, you, I just, I got really ticked off. And I won't say exactly what I said, but I'll summarize you can, it. You can say exactly no, what you I, said. No, You're I, welcome to tell no, us who no, it was, too. There, I mean, no, no, there were a couple. Doesn't a couple, this go back to the authenticity point uh, that you were? Look, I'm not here to throw people under the bus, but <laughs> he lives in town. So, but I, I got really upset. And I said, man, I said, you, you don't get it. I said, well, you know, if we, if, we, if we did these types of reforms, then we would be killed politically. And I said, no. I said, you're, you're such cowards. People will stand up and champion you for doing things that haven't been done before. Even that might not be in their interest, and they may not agree with every policy or change that you made. They'll understand. They'll say, look, finally, I have to balance my home budget. My business has to balance its budget. And finally, the government is standing up and saying the same thing. Does it need massive entitlement reform? No. You know what the key is? The 10th Amendment. States' rights. We are a republic. Send it back to the states. You can cut massive amounts and create massive amounts of saving, cut massive amounts of spending by sending effectively bigger block grants back to the states and letting the states decide what to do. The amount of, of bureaucracy that gets caught up in this stuff, the rules, all of these things that then translate to bigger costs on states and localities because now we have to follow your inane rules because Washington still has a mentality of one size fits all as opposed to saying, look, What's best for New Hampshire is not necessarily what's best for anybody else and vice versa. So if you send it back to the states, you create massive amounts of efficiency. You can maintain pretty much all of the entitlements. You really can. I mean, you might have to have to create reforms way you know, down the road for new members coming in, but you don't need to change anybody's entitlements for, for those that are currently in the system. And it's the again, look at all the discretionary spending. We just spent this $1.7 trillion bill. I ask everyone to go. I have a whole list of it. Every state, you should see the pork that is in that bill. Yeah. It is out of control but, on the but, dumbest but, stuff. Uh, just on a, on a relative basis, yeah. discretionary spending in pork is just nothing compared to Medicare, Medicaid, uh, inter now interest on the debt. Social Security is sort of its own its own problem. If you, if you wait to make reforms so that they don't affect people in the current system – are, don't you risk not attacking with the urgency that it requires? I mean, you, you read the trustees' reports. They're sounding the alarms yeah. as, oh, no, as loud they as they possibly can. These things are going to go bankrupt. And, and, and it is the case. I mean, yeah. I think the challenge for, for so many Republicans is these are popular programs. People don't want them cut unless you make an argument, unless right. you try to persuade people. And, you know, I think a lot of folks see uh, George W. went out in 2005, I think, right. right, with a lot of Social Security form ideas and all that and just got pounded. And, he, and to, I went back and looked at that. He got pounded less by the public and more by his own part and more by just the politicians that said, please don't do this. We don't want to stand up and, and make the argument. So I don't think you need mass. I really don't think you need massive entitlement reform because uh, we will continue to grow. We are going to have a strong economy. Um, what, you know, with this in, uh, inflation uh, gets under control and uh, it could rail on the, the Treasury and, and who should be fired at the Treasury, starting with Janet Yellen and go right down the line. 
for, for what they did with inflation because that very well could have been controlled. But let's start with, with leadership that understands fiscal responsibility. None of this is going to matter if you don't elect a president that actually understands and cares about balancing a budget. Or even talks about it. I mean, this is the thing I think that's been missing. It's not. It's really not part of the conversation. People don't want to make it part pretty, of the conversation. But I, I do. extraordinary given that we're Unbelievable. $31 trillion. And we're Republicans. In. And we're conserv- fiscal conservatives first. So, that, look, that's one of the reasons I'm trying to push and stay out there as, as, as hard as I can. Because I think, you know, I was told we were going to get immigration reform. In 17 and 18. And we had Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the House, and a Republican president. We got nothing. Healthcare reform got nothing. You know, uh, balancing the budget obviously got nothing. You know, debt management. We hired a guy who lives on debt and, and doesn't believe in debt management, you know, and knows how to take advantage of those systems. Um, we could keep going down the line of all these things we should have gotten done. Would we be having the crisis, the immigration crisis today, if we had just done some of the reforms in 2017 and 2018, like Republicans said they were going to do. Why don't, that, why don't those reforms happen? The, and we've the, been talking about comprehensive immigration reform for I gotta be decades. Honest, that, one, that one I can't figure out because you definitely have Republicans on one side and Democrats on another that would come together. Not on a whole bit, not on, not on every last thing you want, but you put it all on the table. Like, this is what I do in New Hampshire. Okay, here's the 10 things I want and the 10 things they want. In immigration, f- the first five on both sides are pretty understandable, right? Maybe their side doesn't want to build the wall. I think we should. I think you have to secure the wall. But their side wants other things that we want. And, and again, you give a little, you get a lot, and you negotiate it out. And if you can't get everything you want, don't put it on the bill. Take some of it out of the but bill doesn't and your, get a so first I, phase done. I, I agree with that analysis on sort of um, um, top level. Doesn't your analysis depend on the assumption that they want to get it done? That it's not oh, more useful as an issue? No. I, 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 who's winning on that issue right now? I, I mean, I don't. Pe- think you know who's winning? Is. Republicans run, running in primaries and Democrats running in primaries. In primaries, right? And they can't close the deal they in can, November. They on can it, run, but they can run on that. They can yeah. win primaries. Primaries. Yeah, they are can win important. primaries and be losers in November, and that infuriates me. That as a party, we keep nominating people that have no chance of winning in November. And and if anything, you can disagree with my politics all you want, but please, can we all agree that none of this matters unless you win in November? Right? None of it does. And if you, you're electing somebody who can't cross the line, then this is just it, – it's futile. So I just I, – I, I try to live by the example of we've gotten a lot done. I've gotten it with Republicans and Democrats. I get politically rewarded. It doesn't mean everyone agrees. Does every Democrat agree with what I'm doing in New Hampshire as a conservative? No, of course not. But they trust me. There's a sense of trust there. They know what I'm about. I'm super transparent. And what, when I said what I was going to do on, on school choice, which obviously the teachers union and a lot of the Democrats hate, it's exactly what I did, and, and I worked very hard to get. And when people said it couldn't get done, I, I didn't accept that. And, and again, are Democrats coming around to it? No, but it's less of an issue today than it was two years ago, and it'll be less of an issue two years from now. So you gotta, you got to learn to take the incremental wins with it, and then you build off of those wins. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but 
I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let me ask you about Trump. Um, Who? You knew it was coming. Um, (laughs) So you gave this speech, the Gridiron Dinner, this appearance at the Gridiron Dinner last spring, and you said Trump is, quote, effing crazy, but you didn't clean it up. You the don't. Way that, you don't the tell the that, joke like I the do. Way that I, the, though, I feel like Michael Scott watching somebody not tell the joke the right way. Tell it. No, uh, no, it was a very good joke. And look, it was a roast. That's what the gridiron dinner of is. Of course. And it was look out. That, that was a very fun night. Uh, I made tell, fun of Biden. I really fun. tell the joke. Tell no, me. I'm not going to tell me tell the joke. No, that. Well, that. that I would that love it. The, I think the, it's great. The spontaneity of the moment. It's it's kind of a it's a. I'll tell you. This is how why the joke went over so strong, because I I I got the I got. I mean, it's a pretty liberal room, and I'm the one Republican yeah. that has to get up there. And I got the room, uh, I, I got the room thinking I was going in a different direction, and you could have heard a pin drop. And then I dropped the punchline, and it, the place roared, right? And it was kind of more of a shocking thing than anything. And also, I know the F word had never been used before in that. And and I'm not a big, you know, I try not to. Uh, I'm the governor. I try not to use foul language, but it's a roast. And I look, I made fun of my, my father right before that. I made fun of myself. I made fun of Biden. Jen Psaki was sitting right next to me. I was making fun of her and, and MSNBC. I made fun of everybody. And then I made fun of Trump. That's, it's a roast. That's what you're supposed to do. And, and everyone had a good time with it. So it was great. But look, the other half of the, no, he's not. He's not effing crazy, of course. But uh, when it comes to the former president, I'm not pro-Trump. I'm not anti-Trump. I'm like most Americans. I'm just moving on. Right. I think he did some really good things. And I was very strong about standing up when he, as president when he would do something that I agreed with. I'd say this is terrific. The vaccine, the regulatory form, he the tax cuts, he did it and he deserves all the credit in the world for doing that. But when he would stand up and say something that I disagreed with or no, not the right tone or was insensitive or insulting, I would say that, too. Yeah. The, the, these are just the ABC. But on the, on the crazy question specifically, <laughs> <laughs> there was a second part to your, to your joke. And, and you, you, you added, you I've, got, I've got it. I was not yeah, there. I'm not violating any confidences. Like, Don't worry, Governor. Whatever you I'm say not violating. stays I read iron. this. I read this in a publicly available place. I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not part of the off-the-record agreement. You said the press will often ask me if I think Donald Trump is crazy. And I'll say it this way. I don't think he's so crazy that you could put him in a mental institution. But I think if he were in one, he ain't getting out. So that's I think it's a pretty line. good line. I think, that's I think it's a pretty good line. I'm, I'm, this laughter that you're hearing my, from me is genuine. Yeah, it's funny. It's Are you funny. serious? Do, do you think that's no, real? Look, no, look, the, the former president, everyone knows he's got a, a very big ego and, and all of that sort of thing. And there's some narcissism in there, of course. And that's what kind of creates the funny parts of those types of jokes, right? Because, you know, he, he's all, like, let's, everybody knows, there's no secret, he's pretty much all about himself and what what he wants to do and, you know, what barriers are in front of him to achieve his goal. That's, he's not the first politician to be like that. He's a, a quite loud about it. You know, one thing I'll say, uh, he, 
would he take questions from MSNBC and CNN and yeah, he would always take questions. I mean, that guy was not afraid. That and, was part of the, a, that was part of how we learned that he actually is crazy. I mean, look at the things that he was arguing in the context of the election. Yeah. Like that, oh, well, that's a whole different that thing. Was, now you get to the election that was in January crazy, 6th, that, right? that gets way out It there. was yeah, crazy. Yeah. You look at the stuff he's talking about now. He wants to yeah. suspend the, the Constitution, Constitution. Yeah, no, so is... that he can be reinstalled. I'm sorry. That is, to use your phrase, yeah. effing crazy. Yeah. Why not say that he's crazy? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, now fact, I said but, but now, after yeah. touting yourself as authentic and as saying what yeah. you mean... Yeah, you're, you're walking it back. Oh, I'm not. I'm not walking anything back. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious. So look, um, I, I don't. I wouldn't. I would never say something. Someone's crazy, like in a serious way. I think that's. Uh, I, look, I try to stay positive, man. I really do. And I'll poke jabs at people, and they poke jabs at me, and I'll make jokes and all that sort of thing. And obviously, every good joke has some truth behind it, right? Um, but you know what was amazing about? I mean, there's a lot of stories that came out of that gridiron night. But what what was really amazing is for the days after, everyone was talking about it, and the, that I made this joke. And all, all the significant, I'll say the significant political talking heads of the Republican Party were dead silent. They were all just yeah. watching what's going to happen. Yeah. What is Trump going to say? What, you know what Trump said to me about that? Nothing. Oh, really? No, I talked to him a few months ago. I talked to him in September. I was trying to get him to endorse a candidate running for the U.S. Senate in, in New Hampshire. We had a great conversation. It was great. He's never said anything negative about it. Look, I, what he thinks about it, I don't know. But I'll tell you, the guy does have a sense of humor. I mean, he's not completely humorless. Um, maybe with the media he is and all that because it's a real fight with him. So, no, I'd look, I don't, I don't know exactly what he thinks of the whole thing, but it was, it was a funny joke. So if he, this, I, I know you love hypotheticals. I know you love hypotheticals about Trump. As an engineer, I do not like hypotheticals. I like to go on the record. But. It'd be great to test this if we could. Sure. Maybe it wouldn't be great to test this if we could. But he runs. I mean, do you think he's a front runner right now in twenty twenty four? Well, top two. Him, it's him and DeSantis, right? Right and, now. And then there's just everybody else. But no, it's it's the two guys running that are clearly running for president are running for president. Yeah. yeah. If if Trump's the Republican nominee, do you support him? If he's the nominee? Yeah. Yeah, I, would, I fully plan on supporting the Republican nominee. He's not going to be the nominee, though. I mean, that is a real hypothetical. It's but not isn't that, happen. isn't that, I mean, given your critiques of him over the past, isn't that, walk, walk me through how you get there. If you think that you know, if you've been as critical as he's been, if you've let's look at the joked and sort of half joked that that he's crazy. Well, look at the alternative. No, look at the alternative. The alternative. Do I agree with how he says things and all this kind of stuff and, and whatever? Um, look at we're going down a path of of like not theoretical socialism, but the Democrats have been absolutely brilliant about how they've. I'll, I'll go to that next generation, the Gen Zs, um, the the I Gen, whatever you want to call it. They they aren't advertised. Republicans are so bad because we advertise, and that's not how you do it. Democrats have been influencing, and not just influencing with traditional. And we're talking left wing, progressive, socialist stuff. We used to make jokes about socialism. I mean, can you imagine? You know, oh, what is? You know, that guy's like a socialist. And if you even said that to someone like Obama, he would be like, "That's crazy." You know, we don't want socialism. And now it's it's mainstream conversation, and they've done a brilliant job of getting us there. That is my fear. I'm scared of where we are today from a government standpoint. I'm very proud of our country. I think we have lived in the greatest country in the world and all this opportunity. But that is without a doubt going to erode. Um, you can't be $31 trillion in debt. You can't have a mindset of bigger government all the time and, and government's here to solve your problems and all of that. And this generation, that's why I work so hard on the next generation because I said to um, about 400, 500 kids came into the state house once. And uh, there were these volunteers. And I said, but let's just have an honest conversation. We, I introduced myself. And I said, can you guys explain to me 
how you're kind of the first, you know, young up and coming generation that I've ever seen in American history that isn't saying, you know, fight the power, fight the man, fight, fight the government. We're, we're independent. We know better than, than you old, you know, boomers. You're actually saying, no, give us more taxes, more government. That's mm-hmm. our, that's our answer. Mm-hmm. I said, can you explain that to me? Like, what do you guys, I'd love to know. What are you thinking? You know, why do you want bigger, bigger, why do you want more government? What was their answer? And the dead silence in the room. And then this young girl in the back goes, uh, that's a good point. Uh (laughs) And and again, I think we're, the problem is we're living here uh, at 30,000 feet with headlines, with emotion, as opposed to, you know, allowing ourselves and being an example as kind of adults and parents and, you know, leaders in our community, uh, make forcing that next third and fourth level of discussion about, wait, what are we really talking about here? What are the repercussions of what you're talking about? I mean, just look at those polls. When you pull young people, what do you think of communism, right? And, and what is it, like 25% of young people say communism is probably a pretty good model. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, just let's, can we look at Russia And they're deeply skeptical today? of capitalism, too. Right. Deeply skeptical of capitalism and free markets. And folks like AOC can raise millions of dollars on this, on this nonsense. And the most shocking part is we actually have a real-world example of communism, whether um, it's, it's in Venezuela or whether you're seeing what's happening with Russia, you know, this dictatorship t- style or what's happening in China. It's right there in front of us how bad these systems are, how oppressive they are to the individual, how they strip you of your rights yeah. and your voice. And, but we're just There's an historical answer. There's yeah. an historical yeah. answer now. We know. We, we know. Um, let me, I know you got to run. Uh, no, I'll sit here get all to... day. I couldn't <laughs> This is awesome. Want to get to? Um, I usually after like if you, you want to bring in like rum and cokes. Actually, uh, well, we in about twenty scotch. minutes, I will really open up. We have we have some <laughs> scotch on the on, on the floor here. I just started drinking scotch, by the way. Well, scotch oh, and whiskey. Really? Um, it was never my thing. And you like it now? Is I that just d- an age I thing? Do. Acquired I do. taste. Isn't that weird? I can't drink scotch. I have a theory about scotch. Well, I've debated me. it. Jonah's a big scotch drinker. Um, David French drinks scotch. I think nobody actually likes. Scotch. I, said, I think it's yeah. like, it's a thing because it tastes so terrible. I mean, the people the people who drink scotch obviously will come at me, but. So I will tell you, I was right with you a year ago. I'm like a rum and coke guy. Just give me my kind of a sweet rum and coke, great, whatever, gin and tonic. Okay, fine. But regular scotch, I would never touch it. But I tasted really good scotch. And I had maybe two, I gave myself two or three of them. Yeah. And I started going, I get it. Now, I can't tell the difference and I don't care about all that stuff. What is a 50-year in, in, in a 12-year or whatever, McClellan, I don't even know. But I get it. It was pretty good. I like sipping on it. It was warm. I mean, we have some. It was warm. We literally and, uh, have some here. And you... it was just a very easy drink to have, an easy drink to kind of carry around Jameson in my hand. Black Barrel. You know? I should have. Oh, it's Irish whiskey. And also, you know what else I liked about it? I drank it slowly, and I didn't mind drinking it slowly. I haven't. Look, I'm not so into it that I figured out, whether do I like it on the rocks? Do I like it neat? I don't know. I'm not a very big drinker at all, by the way, at all. But uh, But, no, I just started this thing. Uh, but I started with good stuff, and that kind of got me hooked. So next time, next time we do this, we'll do it in New Hampshire, and uh, we can each bring a drink of choice, and then we'll have this. So what's your anti-drink of choice? Like, wh- what did you? I'll, I'll this if you don't mind me. What did you likely throw up on the first time you got drunk, and therefore you can never touch again? So I don't. Right? Ha- I, we I, all have one of those. I honestly we? don't have one of those. I'm not. Um, I don't drink hard liquor, really. I, I drank some bourbon in college, yeah. and I still don't mind bourbon. But I don't. I mean. It's like three times a year. Are you year, a beer guy? Maybe. I grew up in Milwaukee. Oh, so there you go. I was definitely a Red beer guy growing up. But I can't. I just, this is an old guy thing and probably way too much too much information to include the in a podcast. I can't do it. My body just doesn't like beer anymore. Really? And it's painful because I love yeah. a, good, uh, a, a good beer as much as the next guy. No, my thing is Spanish wine. I lived in Spain for Ooh. a year yeah. and- 
I think Spanish wine is is. Uh, Where do you live in Spain? In Madrid. Madrid. Yep. My wife lived in Cordoba, down. Um, oh, in, love yeah. Cordoba. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful area. She, yeah. she's, she grew up in a Spanish-speaking town, so she speaks very fluent Spanish. But uh, uh, I grew up in a yeah. Spanish-speaking town, and I do yeah. not. Speak yeah. I'm not a wine guy though. Speech. I lived in Cali. You know, I lived in. I went to San Francisco for three years. I went. We had never lived anywhere else. I was about to get married. My wife and I moved to San Francisco just to see what it was like, and we and it was beautiful. I mean, we spent all our money on rent and food. Yeah, and uh, and you could do that before we had kids. <laughs> right. But I tried to get into the whole Sonoma Napa thing. Not my oh. not my jam. Mm. Uh, it's like oh. it's, I, I would like to live out there. Really, for that, for that reason. Boy, I mean, it was you'd go out and you get guys and you'd be doing these tastings and you have these insanely wealthy people that you didn't know that had just bought like thousand dollar bottles of wine and wanted to share it with you. It was insane. You know, we were like twenty somethings, and uh, I would be drinking this wine, going, I, "This could be two buck chuck," and I couldn't tell the difference. I don't. It's all the same to me. I I felt bad. I've but, become um, a little bit of a snob. I hate yeah. to I hate to admit that, but do you just like hold your ear wine, when you smell the glass? Are you that guy? I don't hold my ear, um, but no, I can <laughs> taste the differences, the and I know the grapes, and yeah, no, I get, I, I, I get I notes like of uh, of asparagus and pumpkin here, wet asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's end on New Hampshire. Let's end on on First in the Nation. Um, really interesting stuff happening on the Democratic side yeah. right now. Yeah. National Democrats don't want New Hampshire to go first. Uh, New Hampshire Democrats really want yeah. New Hampshire to go first. But interestingly, neither of the Democratic senators from uh, New Hampshire are really doing much. Shocking. They haven't done anything there. since they took off. So you expecting them <laughs> just to wake up now? That's no. I, I teed you up for, you for that, didn't I? God. But I mean, it's a fifty-one forty-nine Senate. I mean, they could they could make some of President Biden's priorities and a challenge should. if they said, "Hey, we, we want you in New Hampshire." Look, there are two Democrat senators sitting there. They have all the leverage in the world to say this ain't going to happen, and they're not they're not using it. And I've never they're like terrible used car salesmen. They don't know how to make a pitch. What, it, what has happened is this decision was going to be made to strip New Hampshire of the First Nation primary back in August. And then they delayed it because they thought Hassan might lose on it, which who knows what would have happened. So then they said, we're going to make the decision in November. They delayed. December, delayed. January, they delayed. Now they're saying um, we have till June. They asked me, the governor, the Republican governor, to send them a letter confirming that I would change my state law to conform with the National Democrat, Democrat Party's demands. And I ever so politely told them to go screw. <laughs> so this is this is their crisis, though. They're realizing the arguments we've made are, are quite valid. The fact that you have candidate Joe Biden saying, I'm going to take it from New Hampshire and bring it to South Carolina. Let's talk about South Carolina for a second. The, the voter turnout in South Carolina is 16 percent. New Hampshire sets records with our voter turnout. In 2020, they didn't even have a primary for, for Donald Trump. When you're the incumbent, they traditionally just anoint the elite. They don't have to have a primary. So Joe Biden has taken the first in the nation primary from New Hampshire to move it to a state that will not even hold a first in the nation primary. Why? It's just personal political payback to his buddies that resurrected his. Uh, I mean, that was you know, where he was yeah. reborn. And right? look, he went a hundred days. In and New he didn't Hampshire do what? Did, what was it? What did he get? Eight eight percent in New Hampshire? Oh, he got crushed. Oh yeah, yeah. he he got on a plane at four o'clock in the afternoon on election day and flew out of there on a, uh, because he he knew he was he hit. But he had earned that disastrous result because he wouldn't answer questions. He wouldn't be personal. Um, he wouldn't look people in the eye. And, and they tried to protect him too much. And we don't, it doesn't fly. South Carolina, it's more about the political elites. And he was able to be successful there. So he's just rewarding them. Now, nationally, the Democrat National Committee is realizing, wait a minute. This goes, goes quote unquote, to South Carolina. What's going to happen? You think no one's challenging Joe Biden? Of course they are. 
there's no way some of these progressives are going to stay out of this race. The, the, the liberal, I, I've said this before, but I, I, think, I think it's a pretty good line. You know, I always say, what does, what do, what does the left-wing elite of Washington, D.C. say about Joe Biden behind his back? Exactly what they said to his face on the primary stage, <laughs> that he was an old, out-of-touch white guy that didn't represent the future of the Democrat Party. You think they're going to let that guy sit there for six more years and run this? No way. They're not going to stand for it. New Hampshire's the opportunity. Biden says he's taking it to South Carolina. Believe you me, candidates on the Democrat side are coming to New Hampshire because we're going first. Whether they like it or not, our, our law says we are. The Republicans are going first in New Hampshire. So all these Democrat candidates are likely going to go. Then you're going to have a couple winners come out of, you know, the first or second place person comes out of, of New Hampshire on the Democrat Party. They have all this momentum. They have all the media. They have all the attention. Biden's on his heels. And you, you could potentially have uh, progressive candidates run right by Joe Biden because he was so insistent on skipping New Hampshire. Point is this. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be a lot of drama on the Democrat side. And what about side. the Republican side? It's going to be – look, we crushed it last time. In, in, in 2020, um, both on the Democrat and Republican side, Iowa screwed up. Remember that whole debacle in Iowa? They were still trying to figure out who was winning. New Hampshire was up and the whole country was holding its breath going, wait, is this whole primary process, is it all screwed up? Can we trust this thing anymore? And to our state's credit, we worked really hard and we nailed it. Every vote was counted. We got a winner that night, the whole nine yards, a lot of integrity in the system. We moved forward and the whole country took a big sigh of relief that, oh, okay, we can do this, right? Not every system is screwed up. And so I think we've earned it. If you can get our voter turnout, if you can get our metrics of, of uh, you know, accessibility to the candidates, if you can get our metrics where it doesn't matter how much you're spending in advertising, you got to meet the, the citizens at their level and on their issues – that's the great first filter that everyone in America wants to see. They, they claim that um, South Carolina is more diverse than New Hampshire. What does diversity matter if only 16% of your population actually votes? What's the point of, of— Don't you think more people will show up and vote if it's really the first? I mean, I, I would imagine that no, number because would— No, liber- because the elites still pick the winners. And by the way, again, in Joe Biden's case, they're just going to anoint him because he's the incumbent. They're not even going to hold a primary. That's because they just won't, especially if you have you will have other candidates come out of New Hampshire if they have a head of a head of steam and then they do the South Carolina vote and they let those other candidates on that ballot, they'll likely beat Joe Biden in a state that he thought he was the anointed winner of. So they're going to make sure Biden gets his win and they're going to go to the next state wherever that is. So there's a lot of drama there. They didn't think it out. They're trying to delay it all. But. Um, we're going to go first, no, regardless of what the National Democrat Party On the Republican is. side, there was a poll out, University of New Hampshire poll uh, this week, had Ron DeSantis at 42, Trump at 30, you were at four, Liz Cheney was at four, Larry Hogan was at four. Is DeSantis the front runner? And In New Hampshire, yeah, sure. And how important is it for you if you decide to do this to win your, to win your own state? Oh, if I decide to do this, if I don't win my state, I'm done. Look, people say that, oh, if Sununu runs, he'll have an advantage in New Hampshire. Just actually just the opposite. Yeah, expectations would suggest. <laughs> That's right. Because you, you, you have to win. I have to win or I'm done. And by the way, even if I win, they'll be like, oh, he didn't win by it enough. It doesn't matter. doesn't well, matter. He didn't win by enough. He only won state. by 12 points. Yeah. He should have won by 80. So no, they, there's actually a huge disadvantage to that, frankly. But it, the same goes for Nikki Haley and Tim Scott in South Carolina, another early state, or Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Rubio, Scott, whoever else decides to run in Florida, right? So it's going to be those early states are going to kind of filter everybody out of this race. Now, DeSantis and Trump are really the only two people running. So obviously they're going to do should do best in all the polls. I was shocked that I was even in a poll. That's kind of cool. 
Um, you know, I, I'm, look, I mean, I'm, it was a New Hampshire poll. <laughs> it was. Well, look, I mean, people know me as governor. They yeah. know I, I emphasize a lot. My first attention is always on, on New Hampshire, of course, as governor. Um, but no, we'll, we'll see. There's still a year. That's the other thing. People are like, oh, are you going to get in the race? You've got to decide now. And I'm like, but debates are like, we're uh, talking about August, the first September. debate in July. Oh. July, August. Uh, maybe there'll be some candidates in the race by then, but I don't think everyone will be in the race by then. You don't. So how they determine who stands on that stage will be interesting. Remember, these folks have all been running for president for two years and they're not anoint, announced candidates. When you announce as a candidate, all the rules change. Everything changes. And, yeah. and not for the better in terms of these big fundraisers. DeSantis is raising hundreds of millions of dollars, as is Trump. Uh, well, Trump is a candidate now, but DeSantis, as a non-candidate, is raising a lot of money in a 501c4s or whatever whatever they do. Um, so, you know, it, there's just a long way to go. A lot more politics to be played here. Well, Governor, thanks for playing some with us. Uh, happy to have you did here. I earn Dispatch, my, do I get Dispatch back? HQ. I, did I earn a, a spot back? And next time we'll be in, uh, we'll be in New Hampshire, and we will uh, maybe we'll do it over a glass of scotch and a glass of Spanish wine, red wine. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, man. This is a lot of fun. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.